podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. You're listening to Uncovered with Barat Sundarason and Jared Kimber on the 99.94 Network. Let's just start with the fact Barrett's not here again. This is partly just because my schedule is ridiculous at the moment. Uh, I had to sleep throughout the majority of the day for Barrett. So even if he was available, and I'm not sure he was, but even if he was, there was absolutely no way we were ever going to be around on the same time zone. I'm currently living in a world of, I'm in the UK, but I'm living in New Zealand time zone. And New Zealand time zone sucks. They really should think about fixing this. It doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. But there is an absolute truckload of stuff to talk about today. So of all the times when uh, Barrett's not around, where usually I'm like, okay, what am I going to talk about? This one, there there is no problems here. There has been so much cricket being played recently, of which I feel that I have been living in it. Uh, I feel like constantly hungover at the moment, just trying to catch up with all of cricket. But let's start with the Women's World Cup. Australia won uh, another title. Uh, That's getting a little bit boring. But just what a ridiculous cricket team they are. Um, It's it's interesting, you know, if you go back and have a look at um, the Indian men's team, and I've talked about problem solving at World Cups. It's a really, really, uh, you know, an interesting thing to be able to do. Have a look at England. They lose to the South African um, team in the semi-final. They're probably a better team. They didn't pr- have the ability to problem solve how to take wickets in that game against South Africa. Um, South Africa end up making slightly more runs than they should have, and then of course the England women uh, you know sort of crash out at the end uh, because their middle order and lower order either haven't batted or aren't as strong as they should be. Fine. Australian team, if you look at them against South Africa in the final, didn't bat particularly well. Didn't bowl particularly well. I feel it terribly at times. And yet they still win because they have so many different players that can save them. You know, so many lower order players um, that can still bat very good. Even, you know, if their third and fourth be- uh, best bowlers um, aren't particularly going well, their fifth and sixth and seventh best bowlers are still probably better than anyone else's second and third best bowlers. Just such incredible depth from that perspective. Um, and so, yeah, it's getting uh, it's getting to be quite... All- it's getting to be quite interesting that I don't think we saw them at their maximum and they're still winning. What happens, A, when they start to get into um, the maximum? And and then I suppose the other side of that is uh, whether this is a good thing for women's cricket or not, that one team is so dominant. I'm probably on my own in thinking it is a good thing and that uh, it really does help, but I can see why most people wouldn't think that. It's worth focusing on South Africa. I still don't think South Africa is probably in the best three teams in women's cricket at the moment. They were two and two in the regular part of the tournament. They then beat um, England in that um, game. But from a narrative perspective, everything that they have gone through, the fact that they have never been in a final before, all the stuff with the fitness tests and everything else coming in, losing to Sri Lanka in the first game. I think this is even more important for Women's World Cups, but it's really quite important for all World Cups. You really want the home team to do well. Having been in countries where the home team has not done well, 2003 um, Men's World Cup, certainly one, where it just felt the energy went out of that World Cup because South Africa was so poor. So for the women to do so well in this one, I just have a look at some of the crowd in in that final and what was going on. You know, the sellout. That was a weird sellout, wasn't it? They, it's one of those things where they didn't open the members up. and um, But the, of the tickets that were available, they were all sold. The crowd completely got behind South Africa. I, th- I thought 
in both the semi-final and the final that the Australian and the England team got a little bit rattled by the South African crowd. I think the pressure of the situation got to them, perhaps more than the opposition even did. So, uh, yeah, I think from that perspective, just absolutely, um, I think it was great that South Africa did so well. But also for them, you know, Marathon Cup and, you know, um, and some of the other players that have been around for a long time, these are top quality players to have never played in a final at any one event. Uh, it feels a little bit silly. So it was awesome seeing them uh, do so well. And there was other good stories, I thought, from the Women's World Cup as well. You had uh, South Africa, uh, sorry, uh, you had Ireland. Um, I've talked about them a fair bit. Really impressed by the way that they played. And Sri Lanka, you know, they had their couple of years where uh, the uh, Sri Lankan cricket forgot that they had a women's team. To go from that to them being South Africa in that hope, opening game, they, they won another game as well. I thought they got worked out a little bit towards the end of the tournament, probably because people hadn't seen them that much uh, and suddenly were being able to see them for the first time in a long time. But I really I, I really was was happy with the way that, that Sri Lanka went. New Zealand's the interesting one. They were dreadful in those first couple of games. They weren't that far away from qualifying in the end, which is really, really interesting. Um, but uh, I, they're the ones that I, I feel... I've done an episode with Rafa Nicholson. She doesn't quite agree with me. And she's certainly a bigger expert on women's cricket um, than I am. Uh, that'll be out um, in a few days. But I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit interested in what is happening with New Zealand when they turn up at World Cups. It could just be that they're slipping a little bit as a team. But I do think the last couple of World Cups, they just haven't looked as sharp when they've needed to be as sharp. And they've looked a little bit muddled at times. Um, and uh, uh, the West Indies team, I think that's the other one that is the most interesting of where it is. You look at some of these other teams like Ireland and Bangladesh and, and Pakistan, and you look at some of their stars coming or you know, potential stars coming through, and you're like, yeah, they may not be a, a team that ever plays for the semifinals, but there's there's something happening there. You look at the West Indies, and even watching some of the cricket in the in the CPL, I wonder if just there is another generation of players coming through that's going to keep them relevant. I'm really worried that they're going to slip back massively and teams like Ireland and Bangladesh will will go beyond them. Um, but it's a really, really interesting one uh, going ahead on on, uh, on the on the Women's World Cup. But overall, very, very um, successful tournament. I say that, you know, having watched it jet-lagged or hungover at all times, uh, despite the fact I haven't been drinking and haven't been flying. But, you know, there's so much cricket being played now that... You know, you had two other major test series being played with, you know, three of the four biggest teams um, in the world all going on. And then the PSL. So essentially the four biggest cricket markets all had other cricket available to them. I think considering all that, it was a very, very successful test. Uh, test? A very successful World Cup uh, for the women. And um, I, th I thought that they did very well. Um, the biggest problem, of course, at the moment is we have so many World Cups um, that you can't remember which one is which and uh, what is happening in any um, situation. Um, but yeah, great work to everyone involved. I enjoyed the cricket that I saw and I am team all Prendergast. All right. What have we got next? Oh, so I wanted to get to um, uh, New Zealand, England. So I've been covering that one for TalkSport. Uh, so if I look dead inside, uh, that's because uh, I am working the weirdest uh, hours uh, I have in a, in, a, in a very, very long time. Interesting test going on there. Obviously, it's a weird one on this show to be able to talk too much about it. But I, I think there's a couple of very, very interesting storylines that have come out of uh, that particular test series. So New Zealand, we've seen them now when they've struggled against England, sort of gone in with these 
three-person bowling uh, lineup. So I, I don't want to have a go at Michael Bracewell because I, I wrote an article when he came through that I think Michael Bracewell could be a really good squad member for New Zealand going ahead. You don't want to play him in every game, and his batting's probably never going to be quite be strong enough uh, for him to make it as a batter. And his bowling is obviously he's you know he's he's like Moen Ali's bowling, except not as developed really. And so there are going to be games where he looks really good, and there'll be going to be games where he doesn't. I think that's very very fair. But because of his all round skill and also his fielding, he's a really really interesting player to almost have in your squad at all time. It gives you a little bit of flexibility. Someone who can bat anywhere from one to eight apparently. And you know, as a part time spinner. If you're going to have a part-time spinner who is um, who's working his way towards being a frontline spinner, you want someone who actually turns the ball, and he certainly gives the ball a fair rip. So I like it in that situation. But you would argue again that that means that New Zealand only have three frontline bowlers in their lineup. We saw them do that at I want to say Trent Bridge was one of, certainly one of the test matches against England. So when they get rattled, they sort of seem to be going to these sort of seven and eight batting lineups it's a really really interesting theory i mean you know baseball is the is the thing that we're noticing the most at at the moment but you know new zealand going in with three frontline bowlers bracewell and mitchell um it probably would work better if you have de grandholm um obviously but they don't have that option available to them anymore but it's a really really interesting thing in this particular test of course um things have changed a little bit because of the follow-on and the pitch and everything else um so i'm not willing to say oh it's a massive success and it's gone on to be absolutely brilliant but i I would say that i I think it's a a very very interesting uh, one i've just seen there's a typo in the title i'll mention that when my when i get to that game um but we've somehow managed to misspell one of the easiest words in the English language. And I'm sure that was me sending a message to my producer at 5am this morning. But yeah, so so with New Zealand, um, I, I just think it's quite interesting, but they've got themselves back into that game. Um, obviously, I am recording this well, a few hours before day five uh, starts, so things could change there. But good signs for New Zealand that at least some of their batters made runs. But I want to get into the whole follow-on thing. I think my understanding of cricket has changed a lot since I was 12. But at a very early age, I, I always had a theory that teams did the follow-on incorrectly. And I think the reason that teams always did the follow-on incorrectly is because what they do is they have a look at what they have just bowled out a team for. Um, and they go, well, we've bowled them out. for We made 400 and we bowled them out for 150. Therefore, um, we're going to be able to roll them quite cheaply again. And so we should enforce the follow-on because we've got the momentum we're on top um i did air quotes for momentum in case you're listening to this in the podcast uh you know we're on top so we'll be able to roll through them again i think there are situations where that makes sense i think if you were playing a team that you just think is structurally not strong enough to be able to handle your bowlers that and you've rolled them for 120 140 and you're 250 runs ahead absolutely no problem with you going it's a waste of our time going out and batting for uh, a couple of sessions here and then and then bowling um, at, at the end. I can understand that. Test cricket, though, more often than not, the other team does have a bunch of batters who are very, very talented. And if you want to look at the most extreme example, of course, it's the VVS Laxman um, Kolkata Test Match. That is a perfect example of a game I would not have enforced the follow-on in. And this is not in hindsight because I'm – screaming it to my friends at the time, but I quite often was when Australia would enforce the follow-on and, you know, when other teams would do it as well, which is the pitch wasn't as bad. And I think if you're, if you're, if you're not just absolutely sure that the other team is emotionally shot and will never be able to make runs again, 
or you're not absolutely sure that you are just so much better than the other team that there is no point you prolonging this game any further. The pitch is the most important thing. And if you look at this particular game here, Tim Southey made runs. Now, I know there are still people who believe that Tim Southey is an all-rounder, despite the fact he has a career average of 16. But if Tim Southey is making runs and looking as comfortable as he did, I think that's the point at which you go, probably we're in a better situation here if we go and bat for a couple of sessions. You know, and in England's case, a couple of sessions might be, you know, 300 runs at this stage, the way that they're scoring. We go and do that. We make sure that our bowls are a little bit rested. We come back uh, and we go about it. It was very, very clear outside of a little bit of inconsistent bounce with, I would say, Leach, maybe some of the seam bowls occasionally as well. It was a very flat batting pitch at Wellington. And we also know in Wellington that the pitch gets better as the game gets on. So the high, I think Wellington has the highest batting average for the fourth innings in test cricket since 2010, I think. I think Crickvis gave me this number. I think it averages 39 runs per wicket um, in the fourth innings, which is extremely, abnormally high right that's a ridiculous number to have happen um it's also um one of the few pitches in the world that the third and fourth innings i think uh it's one of 10 pitches in test cricket in that in that similar period uh that averages more um in the third and fourth innings than it does in the first and second innings but the signs were already there when england were bowling and so that's why when when i'm having a look at it have you absolutely demoralized the opposition so that they no longer exist well no because tim southey's just made runs is the pitch still playing up? No, because Tim Southey has made runs. Uh, do you have an aging bowling attack that probably needs a little bit more assistance from the pitch? This is a this is a slightly different one, but you do have to have a look in these conditions at whether you're bowling attack. If that was a green pitch that was still seeming around a little bit, I have absolutely no problems with England enforcing the follow-on again because they would have had a natural advantage. So I do think from that perspective, it, it's really, really interesting. The other thing, and, and I'm sure I've done a video on this and you'll be able to find it somewhere on the channel, but the Eden Gardens game that we talked about before uh, uh, where VVS Laxman um, does that you do hear a lot of people say that that completely changed the way that teams uh, enforce the follow-on in fact i was on talk sport and michael atherton was saying that for the 31 test matches afterwards where the follow-on was um, available teams actually enforce the follow-on exactly the same as they had before there is no impact of that vvs game on the way that teams did it the bigger impact seems to be as we go into two different things uh, two different eras happened the first was we went into the back-to-back era where you start playing test matches with a three-day um, break between the two games which means that you cannot ask your bowlers to enforce the follow-on uh, you know it, it doesn't even make sense the other one is that it became a very strong batting era you know from really from 2000 onwards, but certainly from 2006 to 2015, 16, hugely strong batting era and teams were scoring a lot. So if you, if you were, even if you were on top in the game and you were forced to follow on, chances are that that would still be a 250 to 300 run innings that next innings. And even if you'd made 500 or 600 and you're still going to win the game quite easily, it means that your bowlers have to bowl a very long uh, period. So let that might have taken 50 overs to bowl your team out in the first um, innings, but and they make 300 in the second innings, you might have to bowl for another 80 to 100 to 120 overs um, in the second innings, which means now they're bowling for 170 overs um, guaranteed. So those two things really seem to change it much more than Eden Gardens did, which had no impact on on on, on the follow-on um, in the whatever it was, four years that that um, after that particular uh, that particular game. There actually aren't that many test matches where the follow-on can be enforced which is another interesting subsection of all of that. But the point is that 
uh, the game has changed so much that enforcing the follow-on now is it really doesn't make as much sense as it probably did uh, once a, once upon a time uh, when you have a look at uh, the way that cricket has been played. So uh, really, really interesting one from that perspective uh, in this particular game that, you know, England want to be so dominant. They probably thought this is a chance of us getting a couple of days off. And in the end, they, uh, as I record this, they should win this game because uh, the pitch is still really flat um, and New Zealand don't have many bowlers. All those things are very, very true. Um, but, they put themselves in a position where they put undue stress on their aging uh, fast bowlers uh, and also Ollie Robertson, who's not particularly being fit with his back um, of recent times uh, for no particular reason, I would say. So it's really interesting that they're looking at cricket from that perspective anyway in the, the baseball era. I mean, follow-ons are do feel like a baseball thing, right? Even though baseball is quite a modern concept, it feels like you know a follow-on is the sort of thing that McCallum would just be like, oh, let's just go out and smash him in the face again. And I get it. I get the point behind it, but I just think there were too many obvious, um, I want to say red flags, but there were too many obvious things that suggested that having a, a follow-on on this particular um, pitch uh, wasn't the best idea. Moving on to India-Australia, we've had a week off of that. Uh, the Ashton Agar thing is really, really fascinating. I probably mentioned it a little bit on, on the Wagon Wheel podcast the other day. I can't remember if we went into it, but... It's a really huge issue that I don't think will be covered correctly. I think usually when there is a selection problem, like like Travis Head not playing in the first game, that becomes the biggest issue in the world. Travis Head getting selected or not getting selected is a very normal selection problem to have have, had happened. The Ashton Agar one's really, really different in that it feels like they picked him when he didn't feel comfortable. They then took him out there. They then made him feel less comfortable all the way through. And then so much so that he couldn't even see out the tour, that it was better off for him to go back to Australia and bowl than it was to stay out there. That's a systemic issue and something has gone horribly wrong. And I've been saying for a very long time that the way that Australia picks their spinners, especially for India, never, I don't remember this happening with Pakistan. It doesn't seem to happen with Sri Lanka either, but specifically when they play in India, this panic that they're going to have to, uh, you know, they're already afraid that all the pitches are going to be uh, rigged against them and that they're going to need some random spinner who probably barely gets a game in first-class cricket. Hello, Gavin Robertson, if you're listening. And they're going to throw them in. It's just a really, really poor way of going about it. The better way I would have thought would have been to organize some sort of system where Ashton Agar in the last, if, if, this, if he was always earmarked to play in this series, which I would assume he was, to make sure that he was bowling regular reps, maybe had gone over um, to Asia to bowl a couple of times, some sort of development squad, um, even if it was just training conditions, you know, playing in UAE, whatever that may be, to make sure that he was game and fit uh, ready. He doesn't play first uh, first class cricket much anymore. And, you know, you look at um, Ashton Agar, you look at KL Rahul, there was someone else that had a similar situation recently. It might have been one of the New Zealand players. They're just not playing a lot of Red Bull cricket, these players. So if it's a really important series and it's a really important role, you have to look after these players better. And so many players now are being thrown in into a situation that doesn't make any sense. And you're going to have situations like when, you know, all the young Indian players stood up in, in Australia for, for that tour a couple of years ago. You're going to have a lot of situations where the absolute opposite happens. Um, and, uh, you know, the Ashton Agar situation does seem to be something like that. But I actually want to just talk about the tour itself. When, you, when you're a historian and you go through the history of cricket, it's, it's, it's absolutely brilliant to see how many tours just go off the rails. 
And it makes a lot more sense in the olden days where, you know, you get maybe two injuries on the tour and you've only got 14 players or 13 players in the squad and, you know, suddenly the wicketkeeper is uh, bowling and and uh, all these different things happen. Um, and, and, you, and you do have situations like that all the way through cricket. And then you have, you know, uh, tours that just, you know, uh, England's 13-14 uh, tour, you know, uh, Matt Pryor, Graeme Swan, Jonathan Trott, uh, you know, the, the warm-up game where they played against maybe the 60th to 80th best players in Australia um, got absolutely smashed. You know, just absolutely everything was going wrong in that particular tour. It's a glorious thing, and it's a real part of cricket history. Um, you know, you look at that second Indian tour of England all the, all the way back. There's just been some great tours where everything goes wrong, um, uh, and and no one wants to be there by the end. Everyone hates each other. They're losing their games, all this sort of stuff. This Australia tour is getting very similar. You know, they turned up and they had Stark, Hazelwood, and Green all uh, unfit. Uh, Warner, obviously, in the second test. The whole thing with Travis Head was very, very poor. In that, it's not that I think he should have definitely played in the first test. It's that if you were going to play Renshaw anyway, I think you'd probably just give it to uh, to Travis Head um, in in that kind of situation. Uh, You've then got now Pat Cummins has to go home. Again, you know, I respect him for doing what he's doing, but another player going home. David Warner's gone home. Ashton Agar's gone home. Mitch Slepson went home and is coming back. Um, it's just this weird revolving door. It's a proper tour from hell. And uh, because we don't have as many long tours anymore, you don't get these sorts of tours uh, happening as much as you used to where, you know, you're a month in and you're just like, oh my God, we've only played half the tests and all these things are still happening. So I think it's just a beautiful throwback moment. Um uh, for uh, for cricket uh, to have a tour going this, but I mean, I say all this, and Australia will somehow work out how to win the next test or or something like that. But it just feels like one of those proper old school um, test series where you know you read about them in books and you're like, wait, what happened? Mitchell Swepson was there and didn't get picked and went home and then came back, and some other kid who wasn't even supposed to be playing played ahead of Ashton Kutcher. Uh, Ashton Kutcher. Ashton Kutcher might as well have been playing for Australia. Uh, Ashton Agar. Um, and then Ashton Agar. I mean, it's just, it's one of those ones when you're reading it, like I can imagine some 14-year-old Uber cricket nerd in 20 years' time. Well, not reading it, but listening to a podcast on it. And uh, well, actually, it won't even be that. It'll just be, I don't know, chat GPT'd into his brain, brain chip. Um, and just sitting there going, what on earth? Oh, he won't be sitting. He'll be floating. Sorry, I've taken the future thing way too seriously here. Uh, but I just think it's a brilliant, uh, a brilliant, um, what would you call it? Uh, um, shit show. Just a, a beautiful, a beautiful moment. Australian cricket won't be feeling that way. And you know, as someone who you know worked with Lucia Stars, uh, I can tell you it's a really, really. It, actually, Ian O'Brien told me this once, and when I worked with Lucia, I kind of felt the same thing. I've been with successful teams, and I've been with unsuccessful teams. Um, and and even if you go back to club cricket, are very similar things. Sometimes there is a sort of us against the world feeling of how can I get worse and everyone's against us. And I remember with St. Lucia that kind of, I kind of found like at times the, the team bonded towards the end, um, just because, you know, we were all in this shit show together. And I remember Ian O'Brien saying sometimes that the best relationships he had, you know, sorry, the best relationships that the New Zealand team had was when they were playing actually very poor cricket rather than very good cricket. But yeah, so I, I, there is a part of that. So it'd be interesting to see if there's any sort of bounce on the on the playing side of things or even emotionally this is the kind of tour if you come through it and you're all still friends with each other it's probably a good thing there has been some very good other cricket games in the world uh that uh, i want to mention and you can see that uh, spain versus the isle of man we've 
apologies to Maida that I managed to misspell man to her and she didn't notice it either um for those of you who don't know and i'm going to assume that most cricket fans don't know that isle of man is um a very very um a small island uh, not too far from uh the uk uh very 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 cold they have a famous um motor racing in fact i would say that the reason the isle of man is the most famous uh is the fact that they had a talking mongoose called jeff uh, which I believe they're going to make a film out of um, coming up soon. Uh, Jeff G.E.F., the Talking Mongoose, one of the more bizarre cryptozoology stories of our time, uh, Jeff, the Talking Mongoose. There's a great Monster Talk podcast all about uh, Jeff, um, and the whole thing is absolutely um, remarkable. And if you've been to Isle of Man, you'll understand why people are um, staying there. It's sort of this you know, windswept rock. You can understand why people who stayed there would be fantasizing about a talking mongoose, uh, in, uh, despite the fact that I don't think it was a mongoose. I mean, it probably wasn't talking either. But um, so, so uh, th- th- I've been to the Isle of Man. They also, on their buses, sometimes the bus drivers um, say that you have to, I think it's praise the fairies. It's an interesting place, Isle of Man. Anyway, they played a game against uh, Spain, which you've probably heard of by now, uh, a T20 International. They lasted 8.4 overs and they managed to score 10 runs in that time. The Spanish team came out and just having a look here at the, I've got two different um, score scorecards here. One says that the Spanish team faced three balls, but I'm pretty sure they just faced. Oh, there's a no ball. Yeah, so so um, uh, there were three balls that were bowled, but only two legal deliveries and uh, two of those balls were hit for six. So it took Spain three balls to just to uh, defeat the Isle of Man. Yeah, I mean, the Isle of Man is not a particularly good cricket team. When I was there, I don't remember too many. I, I remember a lot more talking about Jeff the Talking Mongoose and, um, and, and fairies than I do uh, their cricket team. Uh, and the motor, the motor uh, bike race. There's a lot of talking about motorbikes and everything going on there. Uh, but yeah, interesting scorecard if you want to go and have a look at it. It's quite embarrassing to Isle of Man cricket, of course. And the wickets were, were sh- shared out by the Spanish bowlers, uh, 4 4 and 2. So that was very nice as well. The weird thing about this is, I think this game happened very close to when the World Cup final happened. And so it's gone a little bit viral online, uh, but not so much. But I'm not sure it was the weirdest cricket game that happened recently. The weirdest cricket game that happened recently was probably, I want to say, a couple of days before that, which was that. I want to get this right. I always get that. I think it's the WNCL or WCNL, which is the 50 over women's domestic competition in Australia. So the, I think it was the final between um, South Australia and Tasmania. And the game came down to the last over. I'm trying to remember the full details for you because I don't want to get this wrong because it was so absolutely ridiculous. But essentially, um, they needed. Uh, South Australia needed four runs of six balls with five wickets in hand. And you can tell by my, if you're watching the YouTube, you can see by my face that this is not, that's not, this, this is not a game that went in that particular direction. So South Australia, well on top, two cent batters at the crease, I believe at the time. It should be pointed out that even though this is a women's domestic game, WNCL, and the World Cup was on. It, you'd be you'd be forgiven for saying, and if, if you're forgiven for thinking, oh, the quality of this wasn't very high. But, but if you look at the players involved, you know Sarah Coy, Elise uh, Villani, um, there were some really good uh, w- women's big bash players playing here as well. It was a prop. It was a decent level of cricket. And when you're watching it, you know it didn't look like um, I don't know what the Isle of Man game looked like, but it certainly looked like a very high level of, of cricket. Um, so Coit was bowling the last over, and as I said. She's defending four runs, and uh, they managed to um, 
they managed to take five wickets in the last over. So I think it was, I'm trying to get this right, it was wicket, single, wicket, 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 wicket. And the last ball was actually more of the South Australians giving up because they couldn't get the run. So the last run out was just because they, I think the non-striker was just standing midway down the wicket, um, un, un, unable to believe um, that they had managed to lose this game. So uh, there's footage of it on the Cricket Australia's website, which is absolutely worth watching for the panic. There's, I'm trying to think if it's the second or third wicket where I want to say it's Gemma Barsby is batting. I think it, I think it was one of the set players he was batting and it's like Sarah Coit's bowling with the keeper up at the stumps and she comes out of her crease and then tries to dab the ball down and is stumped. It's a beautiful stumping. I mean, some really good cricket is played by Tasmania in this last over. But you are thinking, why on earth would you come down the wicket and then try and dab the ball? Why would you leave the crease with the keeper up at the stumps? Um, and even the wicket that starts it, I think it was a bold of the first ball. So they need four to win. It's a real slog. It's like, you know, when you see, you know, a team trying to win in, in the last over and trying to make sure that they don't get to the nervous part at the end of the over, you see quite often very controlled shots. Um, this was not that. Anyway, it's on Cricket Australia's website. I'm sure you'll be able to find it if you look up Tasmania, um, South, South Australia, um, WNCL. Uh, but it is worth watching. There's a two and a half minute highlights package and there's a longer one. I would go with the longer one because it, it is absolutely worth it. Some brilliant commentary from the commentators involved as well. Um, absolutely beautiful cricket. Uh, my cricket club, Coburg, uh, years ago, were, the scores were level in a, in a, in a game uh, and they were five wickets down and they managed to tie the game. Um, so... I've seen that sort of thing happen in club cricket, but to see it happen with professionals uh, is absolutely remarkable, uh, but worth worth having a look there. All right, well, that's the end of the normal part of the show. I'll, I'll get to your comments. I'm very, very aware that I'm about to go into a coughing fit and uh, completely you know, ruin everything as well. So I think Siddharth has said, does the sort of England basketballing against the Indian spinner trio on Indian pitches excite you? Yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, they're playing the Ashes first, right? And again, uh, I think that is a very, very interesting thing. Uh, I, you want What you really want to see, I think, as much as possible is we have no idea how much this will last. We don't know how it will develop. We don't know what England will do with it, right? You know, they've still got Zach Crawley batting terribly at the top of the order. Ben Duckett, I think he's batted really well in New Zealand, but I still very... I've still got in my mind the way he played against the South African quicks and, you know, very interested to see how he goes. Um, you know, and Oli Pope, I think, is a very, very good player, but I still think there are massive holes within his game. What, and so I suppose what I'm trying to say there is that top three is still an issue. And so how basketball goes, I think, depends on whether they can really transform the other people. I started writing it, what, whenever Moen Ali came into the team, was that 2013-ish? 2012-ish, um, that England is, you know, has this incredible amount of middle-order players and this middle-order talent available to them. They're playing differently, but it's still that sort of basic, um, you know, lineup flexibility that they have available to them, although they're slightly different now. They're not playing as many all-rounders. But um, I don't think, them, you know, that sort of four, five, six, seven period has not really been their problem all the way through. I, I kind of believe at a certain point that basketball for it to be successful over a long period of time i think the top three have to be the ones that step up and it has to change what they do um so watching them do it against india in india and, and against the australian bowlers uh i i think it's going to be fascinating 
you know, it's this is the thing. It's such an exciting way of playing cricket that even if it flames out, it's going to be fun, right? Uh, Christopher says, uh, Wolfart has been really impressive for such a young player. I hope she goes on to be one of the best. Uh, these big game performances are a joy. Yeah, I thought her innings, I, I should have uh, probably underreported on her innings. I thought she was magnificent. She's, I've looked at the data and I'm pretty safe in saying this. I think she should attack a lot earlier in her innings than she does. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the teams that she's played for have not been particularly strong, you know, from number seven onwards. Um, and so from that perspective, she probably bats that anchor role. It's a shame she didn't go in the WPL. I'd love to see her in a really long, deep batting lineup with a bunch of all-rounders in a team and just see what she can do. Uh, I'd love to see her attack the power play a little bit more, even if it's just the, the back end of the power play. Um, but some of her striking against Australia, I thought, was absolutely brilliant. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, so I think from that perspective, um, it's uh, it, it's brilliant. Uh Shamek said, when will Barrett return? I, I think we're having so much trouble, and I don't know what our schedule is going to be like again next week, uh, that chances are until he gets back to Australia and he's on his normal time zone, we may not be able to do these episodes. But I'll send him a message next week and we'll see how we can go. I'm trying to think. Yeah, because yeah, I think next week I'm then doing England, Bangladesh commentary as well. So, you know, we're busy men is the best way of putting it. But we'll, we'll, we'll work something out and we'll get back to it. Uh, it might just have to be that in the future, Uncovered is a little bit more um, whatever day of the week works for us uh, rather than a scheduled day. But um, I'll have to talk to producer Nick and everyone else about that. Uh, Poonit says, Basball is the counter fast bowling. Will it work for spin? It worked pretty well against Judasia in England, didn't it? I think it makes more sense against fast bowling than spin because essentially what you were doing is you were upsetting the natural length. And I d you can't, that's harder to do against spin because of the wicketkeeper being up at the stumps. So I do think, Puneet, you're right. At the moment, Basball is uh, countering uh, fast bowling in a different way uh, from from that perspective. Um, yeah, so it's they're go still going to attack spin bowling a lot more than they probably did before, but I think a lot of the basics of it or the should work more against seam bowling. Uh, Manon says, uncovered without Barrett is wagon wheel chat. No, well, I mean, I, so I can't, can't covered, if I can get my words out, uh, Manon, uh, is more meant to be a look back at the weekend. So what we really wanted was a podcast that would look back at cricket that had just happened, whereas wagon wheel is more, you know, some of the questions on wagon wheel are beautifully random and can be from any time um, uh, from that perspective. So, yeah, it's very, very different um, from that point. Success failure says, do you think New Zealand are batting too slow these days? Uh, they played 150 overs in Pakistan too, but they could have had enough runs, uh, couldn't have enough runs to bowl at the opposition. I mean, I, th I think from that perspective, yes, but I think if you look at uh, their batting, I just think they're going through a new era in New Zealand batting. And so because of that, you know, there's naturally going to be a situation where they are not always, um, they don't, outside of Mitchell, I'm trying to think if there's anyone else who would say is a natural aggressor in that batting lineup. You know, maybe Conway when he's scoring a little bit more. I just don't think they have those sorts of players. So you're right, it cost them in Pakistan. Um, and it probably cost them a chance of winning in this game. But I think the bigger issue is that they're not batting particularly well and they're probably trying to stay in because they're not batting particularly well. That, that would be my guess anyway. Uh, ben says... Uh, I'm, I'm assuming this is on the follow-on, and this is why I'm going to answer it. I wouldn't call it for no reason. If you boil it down to which one takes to draw out the most, the follow-on clearly does that. It doesn't, actually, Ben. Um, so in recent cricket, 
Um, teams who have enforced the follow-on, um, and I think this is from 2004 onwards, uh, it's actually been the opposite. Uh, I think there's been more draws with uh, teams who have enforced the follow-on than teams that haven't enforced the follow-on. And that um, that is counterintuitive, and I understand why it sounds a little bit silly, but I'm pretty sure that's right. Or if, if not, it's almost dead on. Um, I, I haven't got the numbers in front of me, Ben. But, yeah, it doesn't. It used to, and it used to make a lot more sense. But... Th- don't forget the follow-on existed when teams were not as even as they were today. I mean, remember a lot of early cricket, you had uh, 11 playing 15 and 11 playing 21 and 11 playing, you know, all these different uh, lineups. Uh, you then had, you know, teams like West, um, not West Indies, teams like New Zealand who just weren't very strong. Follow-on make a lot more sense back then. Now the teams are a lot more li- level a lot more even, uh, certainly across the top six or seven teams, um, that it's pro- it doesn't make as much sense in modern cricket. And so even in this case, Ben, uh, it doesn't get as many results as you would think it would, which is kind of, again, why, you know, uh, unless you're absolutely so sure it is going to get you a result, it's very rarely the um, the correct decision, you know, just in modern cricket. It's not that it hasn't been correct. I'm sure if you were talking to me in 1930 or 1890, I would have thought that a follow-on was was a tactic that you should have done a lot. And I think it used to be done around 80% of the time. Um, and I'm not sure what the numbers are now, but certainly it's under 50% of the time. And I think cricket teams are right to not use it as much. Hardy says, do you think Bancroft has a chance in this tour? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's hilarious, isn't it? It feels like if, 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 if Bancroft ends up in India for this tour and – well, I should say if he ends up in the 11, even if he ends up, you know, in, in a situation where he makes a comeback even after that, it would, I don't know. It's just such a random story. The Cameron Brown Croft story is such a bizarre um, situation for uh, Australian cricket to be thinking about again. Um, probably the one thing I would say is if he does make a comeback, do you remember when he went on the podcast? And I forget whose podcast it was. And he admitted that the bowlers knew about the ball tampering. And then he had to walk it back a couple of weeks later. That'll be the reason he'll get a recall because uh, I don't think he would have even been close to that um, um, if he wouldn't have uh, done that. So it was a, you know, very, it made him look a little bit silly at the time, but he's not that far away um, uh, from, from that pers- pers- perspective. Uh, Sanjay says, would you rate this current Aussie women's team higher than the 90s and 2000s Australian men's team? Yes. It's much different. It's a much different situation just because. The Australian men's team were professional, but men's cricket was semi-professional around them and very well established. The difference is that you have a professional setup of these women in what is a lot of these, you know, look at South Africa. This is the first final they've ever made of a major tournament. Look at Sri Lanka, uh, Pakistan, you know, it's just not on the same level, so it's easier to dominate. But if you're asking me who is the more dominant out of those two teams, I mean, it's quite obviously the women's team, right? Absolutely one of the most um, uh, one of the most dominant um, things that we've ever seen um, from from that perspective. Um, absolutely, it's ridiculous the amount of talent that is not available that is not in their squad. Um, you know, there was always the joke of where the Australia A team would go in Test cricket and World Cups um, during the men's reign. I think if you took the best eleven women. Um, from Australia and then you took the next best 11 women from Australia, I would think that Australia would have the two best teams. And if not, they would have the best and the third best team. I just don't think that is the case for any uh, the men's team. 
as good as they were, and the men's team were really, really good. I think there was a big drop. If you take, if you have a bowling attack that suddenly doesn't have Warren, McGrath, Gillespie, Lee, uh, Fleming, you know those sorts of players, uh, and you're looking at Kasperwitz, Bickle, McGill, maybe then you play someone like Ian Harvey uh, as your arounder, you know, to give you a little bit more flexibility. I think that's a really good team, and certainly would have won some games. But I don't think it's making an argument that it's the second or third best team in world cricket. Um, and the batting, as good as it was, you know, Martin Love and Stuart Law and Matthew Elliott, <clears throat> again, Brad Hodge, uh, whoever else you want to put in there, again, is probably not quite of that level. Uh, whereas I think Amanda Jade Wellington might still be the best leg sprinter in the world. You know, Alana King might be the second best leg sprinter in the world. Um, you know, Elise Villani has been making runs everywhere back back in Australia. Uh, you know, the uh, the talent that is in that Australian women's team and the talent that is just outside that Australian women's team is just absolutely bizarre. And I, I don't think we've ever seen anything uh, particularly there uh, before. Um, I think I'm going to have to wrap it up, everyone. I don't want to lose my voice for commentary. Uh, if you, you know, I never I never talk about this, but if you do listen to um, TalkSport, uh, sorry, if you if you do want to listen to me uh, commentary, um, and you can get the TalkSport app, uh, we're over on TalkSport too. So I'll be doing New Zealand, uh, England t- tonight, and then on, from Wednesday onwards, I'll be doing um, uh, what am I doing on Wednesday onwards? Bangladesh, England. So there's six limited overs games there. So if you want to come over and listen to some commentary over on TalkSport, you can do that. Uh, sorry about the Barrett thing. We will fix it, but it might just take a couple more weeks. And uh, we, we probably got more episodes without any issues to start with than we ever thought we would. <laughs> um, I don't think me and Barrett were really in a situation where we thought it would go as smoothly as it did. And so it started to go a little bit less smoothly of recent times, but don't worry, he's still around. Uh, we're still messaging each other and we'll, we'll work it out. But as it currently stands, I'm off to have a nap so I can somehow get through another night. But big thanks to everyone for coming on to the chat and giving me something to talk about. And uh, honestly, go and find that Tasmania-South Australia women's game and uh, have a look at it. You are, you know, just, hey, you deserve it. Spoil yourself. Do you know what I mean? Look after yourself because it's uh, it's one of those uh, little moments in cricket that we don't get that often and uh, you're really going to enjoy it. But thanks to everyone and I'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening to the 99.94 Network Cricket Every Day. Remember to download our app or just search for your favourite team at 99.94 where you find podcasts on Google or YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, and there are many other extras available there as well. There is a link to the show notes. The show is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. Barrett Sundaresan is my co-host. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great production team from 42, with Rati Joshi on socials, Orajoti Senapayi and Maida Akam producing podcasts, and Makunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube account.